Welcome back. Hope you have uh, enough coffee and you're ready to go. We are in Acts chapter 27. Acts chapter 27 and 28. This is uh, will be two weeks in a row that I cover two almost full chapters, uh, which for me is a difficult task. If you have a, a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 27. And if you don't have a Bible, there's a paper Bible uh, underneath one of the seats in front of you or behind you. And if you're looking at one of those paper Bibles, uh, it's on page 545 if you want to follow along. I think they'll also put this on the screen. But we are in Acts chapter 27, and we're going to read verses 1 all the, re- all the way through chapter 28, verse 16. And before I read that text, um, we're almost finished with our sermon series. This is the second to the last um, series in the book of Acts. And one more sermon after today. And so two weeks from today, I will start a series through, a short series through the Gospel of Matthew. And we'll look at the seven mountains in Matthew. Uh, Matthew is structured around these seven mountain experiences and they form a literary structure. So we'll examine that starting in two weeks. But for today, as we finish up the book of Acts, I want to put these two chapters in context, um, just in case you're not sure, um, if you can't remember what we did last week or what we did the week before, sometimes um, you know, people will ask, what did you preach on last week? And it might be a Monday or Tuesday, and, and I'll think, I, I can't remember. Uh, and if I struggle to remember what last week was about, um, maybe that's just something about my age, I don't know, but... but um, just so you re- uh, remember, Paul has spent the last two and a half years or so in custody in Caesarea where he was imprisoned after a mob uh, riot against him in Jerusalem. He was rescued by the Roman uh, centurion and then he was taken into custody. And so during that time, there were five trials that Paul went through where he had to publicly defend himself in those two and a half years. He successfully defended himself in court uh, those five times in a row. And, and, and last week, we ended with the conclusion of that where King, Fest, uh, King Agrippa and Festus said that this man has done nothing to deserve death or uh, imprisonment. That's uh, chapter 26, verses 31 through 32. He could have been set free if he had not appealed to see. Caesar. So Paul was technically innocent as a Roman citizen, having not broken any laws uh, in the Roman Empire that would have been deserving of, of death, but he appealed to Caesar, and so now he's about to get on a ship and sail to Rome to defend himself uh, before the emperor. Just saying those words, Paul is now on his way to Rome to argue his case before Caesar. Just the weight of that is incredible when you think of the fact that just 30 years before this event, Jesus had died on a cross, uh, had been laid in a tomb, uh, was resurrected on the third day, and ascended into heaven 40 days, 50 days later, uh, 40 days later, and then on the day of Pentecost, there were 120 of Jesus's followers, just 120 in a, uh, an upper room area in Jerusalem. And so for 30 years later, for Paul to be uh, presenting the gospel before King Agrippa and in front of Governor Festus and Felix, and then on his way to Rome to declare the gospel before Caesar Nero was an incredible um, trajectory of growth Uh, And it speaks to the rapid growth of the early church. It's absolutely staggering. 
unlike your Stanley Cup or your Yeti cooler, um, Christianity wasn't a trendy fad that will be irrelevant in 10 or 15 years. The church that was started by Jesus in Jerusalem had grown through Jerusalem and then Judea and then Samaria and then throughout Greece where Paul went on his three missionary journeys to these large population centers like Corinth and Athens and Ephesus. The gospel was spreading rapidly and churches were being formed and disciples being made. The rapid growth of the early church is absolutely staggering. The church that Jesus started in Jerusalem has been growing and expanding ever since. And as a matter of fact, it's still growing and relevant today. Throughout uh, the last twenty, uh, 2,000 years or so, the church has continued to grow and expand around the globe. Uh, it's relevant today. As a matter of fact, this afternoon, you will likely watch uh, seventh round draft pick uh, quarterback Brock Purdy, um, who plays for the 49ers, whether you like him as a football player or not, one thing you might not know about him is he's extremely public about his faith. Uh, he is a believer and he publicly names the name of Jesus and talks about his faith in Jesus. In an interview with Sports Spectrum in 2021, he said that while he was a quarterback at Iowa State, he got to a point where he realized he had a need for a Savior and he repented of his sins and gave his life to Jesus. And over the last few years, uh, he has continued to maintain that faith, uh, describing that his identity does not come from football. It does not come from being a quarterback. He said, my identity is from Jesus. And continually, I lean on him again and again and again. Whether I play well or don't, uh, whether I am playing football or farming, it doesn't matter. My identity is in Jesus. He describes a peace that he has knowing Jesus that he says, no matter what I'm facing, moving forward during football or otherwise, God and Jesus are my identity. Well, that's a relevance that Paul would have been uh, not surprised to hear. Here's Paul 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection on his way to proclaim the gospel before Emperor Nero. And all of this, the growth of the church, it's all built on the same testimony that Paul has been given all along. Paul has been saying, it's, it's because of the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. It's because I declare Jesus has been raised from the dead that I'm on trial before you here today. And his testimony then, as well as our testimony here today, is that Jesus is still alive. It's the same gospel message that has built the church. And that message is that Jesus died on the cross paying the penalty that he didn't deserve because he was sinless, substituting himself for us because we deserve that death penalty on the cross. Jesus uh, traded our guilt and sin for his righteousness and sinlessness on the cross. And this right standing that he provides with God is given to anyone who will repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus. That's the basic gospel message, is that Jesus traded, exchanged himself on the cross, allowing himself to be sacrificed on the cross for our sins. And so if you'll confess and repent that you're a sinner and believe in Jesus, then you'll be saved. This is the message Paul was on trial for, that he was going to uh, Rome to testify before Emperor Nero. Uh, and this is the same testimony that any of us who name the name of Christ could be on trial for at any time in our life. 
This is the message of the church, and this is the message that the church continuously proclaims. By the way, if the church doesn't proclaim this message or deviates from this message, it, it ceases to become a church. There are a number of churches who soften the gospel message or change the message of the Bible to make it more relevant or to conform to whatever's current in our cultural worldview. And, and when that happens, it's really just a matter of time before the doors would close completely. All you have to do is look at the mainline denominations that were um, thriving two to three hundred years ago and to see now that many of those mainline denominations have completely closed. It starts with a compromise on Scripture and a compromise on the gospel message and a conformity to a worldly message that that really marks the the beginning of the end for any group gathering that calls itself a church. But, But there will always be a remnant of churches that proclaim the gospel and that teach the Word of God. And so those are two primary things that I would encourage you to look for if you're ever looking for a church. Does this church proclaim the gospel as presented in Scripture? And does this church believe in the Bible? Is it their reliable guide for faith and practice? So this is the message of the church. This is the message that has driven the church. It's the gospel message. And at the end of chapter 26, Paul was being declared innocent, yet still in custody, held as a political pawn who was on his way to meet the emperor of the Roman Empire, uh, Caesar, Caesar Nero. So let's get into our two chapters today. Starting in chapter 27, verse 1, um, it says, When it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. I'm sure that Julius was most popular baby name uh, for all of the Roman Empire for so many years in a row because of Julius Caesar. Uh, but this is a centurion who is given, um, Paul is given into custody to, to him to escort him uh, from Caesarea all the way to Rome. This would be similar to uh, an FBI agent uh, or a DEA agent or someone like that uh, transporting a prisoner through a commercial airline, um, extraditing him from one nation to another. This would be a very similar thing. Julius is put in charge of Paul and maybe some other prisoners as well. And it says, And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put out to sea. Let me just pause here because there are some background information that might be helpful. We get um, an introduction to a guy named Julius, the centurion, and, and, and I didn't know this before this week, but if you read about centurions in the New Testament, there's about 25 passages that describe centurions, and almost every single one of them mentioned in the Bible are favorable. They are favorable toward Jesus. Uh, you think about the centurion that came to Jesus uh, to heal his servant. And, and by the time Jesus was making his way to see that centurion and to heal his servant, the centurion sent word and he said, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. But if you say the word from a distance, I know that my servant will be healed. And Jesus healed the centurion servant in this sort of long distance miracle. And it happened at just the same time that this centurion had sent him. Jesus marveled at his faith, this, this man. You think about the centurion who was present at the cross, that as soon as Jesus breathed his last and, and prayed for forgiveness for all those who were crucifying him, this centurion, once Jesus breathed his last, said, surely this was the Son of God. 
You think about another centurion in, in Acts chapter 10, Cornelius, who was very generous to uh, the local synagogue and the Jewish people respected him very much. And in Caesarea, th- this man was told in a dream to send for Peter and Joppa. And he came and he, he got all of his household together and all of his friends and, and others. And this centurion receives the gospel and puts his faith in Jesus. There's the centurion in Acts 21 that rescues Paul from the mob. Another two centurions escort Paul in the middle of the night to Caesarea to help him escape from an assassination plot. And now five times this guy Julius is mentioned in this chapter. I don't know what it is. I don't know why, why that's important. I don't know what it, 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 if it means anything or not. They made five times more than the average soldier. They were middle to upper class. They had tremendous influence. But centurions who were leaders of a hundred Roman soldiers seem to be drawn to the gospel, seem to be drawn to Jesus. And this, to me, was an unusual footnote worth mentioning. It says that they hopped on a boat of Adramidium, that's a city in Asia, in the Adriatic Sea. This first boat that they get on is like a smaller boat. Uh, It's like a coastal port boat that will travel from port to port, not one of these larger sailing ships. Uh, I think I actually have a picture uh, of a, a larger sailing ship. Lily, if you can pull that up. This would have been a, a, a grain ship or a merchant ship that would have been able to deliver tons and tons uh, of material around the Roman Empire. Um, Paul was likely on a grain ship that came out of Egypt. Um, there were all kinds of ships, of course you know this, mostly powered by oarsmen. They would be stacked on on top of each other in a variety of formations. They called these either biremes or triremes. If they had four or more levels, they were called some other name. I can't remember, but it has it ends in reams. Uh, and they would use a combination of sails. Uh, you know that there were smaller fishing boats that would stay closer to the um, to the shore. And then these um, adramidium kind of ships that were just port to port. Um, but this grain ship is likely the main ship that Paul traveled on, and we know that it held uh, a full cargo plus 276 people that Paul was sailing with. So they were rather large ships. Uh, and by the way, um, this journey would have taken four to five weeks in favorable conditions, but Paul's journey is going to take him over four months on three different ships with lots of adventure along the way. Um, this chapter, by the way, has an incredible amount of sailing verses. Are there any sailors in the room? Just raise your hand really high if you are a sailor. All right, we've got one, two, just a handful just a couple of sailors in the room. This is your chapter, by the way. Um, two whole chapters filled. Matter of fact, I think there's a slide here next that shows you. I put in red all the different verses. Um, sorry, go to the next one. I put in red all the different verses that are just exclusively dealing with sailing. Um, 26 of the 60 verses just deal with sailing things. We went under this lee. We bumped along this coast. We dropped these many acres. We wrapped the boat in ropes. We drop the rudder. We t- All these verses just deal with sailing. So if that's your thing, welcome home. I mean, this is your passage. Lots and lots of sailing verses. Um, in order for me to really get the most out of these two chapters, and really, to be honest, if I think I'm going to be able to teach this more effectively in the future, uh, it would be important for me to take a two-week Mediterranean trip. Um, <laughs> 
I, I looked it up. I think the next slide shows that uh, that if I started in um, in Rome and and no, go back to two slides there, Lily. Um, I found um, it's got a price on there. It shows how much. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> Uh, if I go from Rome, Italy, um, I can go to Rhodes, Greece, Ephesus, that's a part in Acts, right? For only thirteen ninety nine um, uh, per person. So I think that this is a worthy use of church budget <laughs> for research purposes in order for me to be able to, uh, to fully get a grasp on what Paul went through here. Uh, let's show the map, though, because this is going to give you a larger overview, and then we can just leave this map up here for the for the most part. Way down here in the bottom right corner is Jerusalem. Uh, you may even have a map in the back of your Bible, but Paul is going to bump north to Sidon, and there Julius, the centurion, is going to give him some freedom. He's going to be able to go and spend some time with friends, believers, have some of his needs met. They're going to switch to a different ship um, over here in Myra, and then from Myra all the way to Malta, this whole section, this is all disaster. This is all a dumpster fire of shipwreck and bad weather. And so that's what we're going to read about here. And, uh, and so there's the map that if you would like to, uh, to follow along. Let's get back to the text. Uh, it says in verse 2, at the end of verse 2, that he was accompanied by Aristarchus. Aristarchus is a Macedonian from Thessalonica. Uh, and, and we learn a lot about um, Aristarchus in a couple of places. He first comes to um, to the stage in Acts chapter 19, verse 29. Uh, he is traveling along with Paul. Uh, he gets dragged into a theater and uh, is a part of the persecution there. Uh, he's again in chapter 20, traveling with Paul to Jerusalem. And then when Paul is writing from Rome in Colossians and also in Philemon, he calls Aristarchus his fellow prisoner. So we can assume that, that Aristarchus... Um, joined himself with Paul in the Caesarean prison and accompanied him uh, to Rome along this voyage. But we also see that uh, Luke is with him, and Luke is the one giving us all these incredible details. And you can see that because from 27.1 all the way to 28.16, there's the, uh, the we in there that had been missing from the previous four chapters. Maybe more information than you care to know, but I'm just trying to give you um, an understanding of the passage. Uh, Verse 3, the next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. A lee was just a place um, on an island where you could get shelter from the prevailing wind that might be um, hindering your sailing across where you want to go. And so they would find some sort of shelter under the rock formations of the island itself. And that uh, was this lee that sheltered them in that place. And you'll see it in a couple of other places here. Uh, Verse 5, when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria, that's North Africa, so they're getting on a different ship, uh, and this is the Egyptian grain ship that I showed you a picture of a minute ago. And so he found out that they're um, going to Italy, and so he put us on board. Verse 7 says, we sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmone. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, 
near which was the city of Lycia. So they board this new ship, and those are that's five verses in red for me. So it's all sailing stuff. Um, important, of course, but I'm not sure why it's important for us today. Uh, verse 9, since much time had passed uh, and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, this is giving us a time of year time frame. What is the fast? Now, this is the Day of Atonement that would have happened in September or so. And so that was already over. And so in the fall on the Mediterranean, uh, ships don't venture out into these long journeys. And so the fast was already over. It was entering into October. From October to February, uh, sailing was extremely dangerous. As a matter of fact, from December, late November to February, ships would winter in one protected harbor for that period of months before they tried to get back out. And so Paul knew it was getting close to that time and that sailing might be dangerous. But, but Paul's just a prisoner. And he, he's a convict or a, 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 he's, he's under the um, escort of this Roman centurion Julius. And he's on a ship with 276 other people, a captain, a pilot, other uh, military personnel, other prisoners, other merchants. He's just one of a number of people. And yet Paul advised them in verse 10 saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. And the centurion, verse 11, paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than what Paul was said. I mean, nothing, nothing extraordinary there. Um, if you're a centurion, you have a pilot and the owner of the ship, and you have experienced sailors, are you going to take their word over this political prisoner that you're escorting? You see, in this sort of new secular environment that Paul finds himself in, he's, he's not really traveling with a large number of his missionary support team, Timothy and Titus and Silas and Barnabas even. None of these other people are with him, and, and he's not necessarily proclaiming the gospel. Paul's just a prisoner. To them, he's a regular guy who's going on trial. An important prisoner and an important person, but not maybe qualified. Verse 12 tells us, and because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. Verse 13, now when the south wind blew gently, they supposed that they had obtained their purpose. What's south of where they are on the map there. It's Africa, right? And so a south wind coming off the the desert would have been a warm breeze that would have sent them where they're off to, which is north and west toward Rome. And so they want this northerly, western, uh, this southern breeze. That's what they were hoping for. And so they, they thought in verse 13, great, we've obtained our purpose. We've got the right winds. They weighed their anchors and they sailed along Crete close to the shore. But as soon as they get around Crete, a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Kata, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. 
And then fearing that they would run aground on Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. Now things are escalating. You're going to start to see it in the language. There's fear. They're undergirding the ship. They're throwing ropes around. They're going to tie off the rudder. They're jettisoning cargo. This is getting um, concerning to everyone on board. Verse 18, since we were violently storm-tossed, they start to jettison the cargo. And verse 19, and on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. So the, the tackle is not what we would think of as a fishing tackle and a box and some rods and reels. The tackle is all the tools and equipment that they use to maintain the ship. All the tools that they use to raise the sails and to do repairs on the board, they're starting to throw vital things overboard. Now remember, there is no uh, flotation device. They're, they're not required to wear life jackets. There's no beacons that will shine that will show them where in the water they are. This is, uh, this is a desperate situation. Verse 20, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. This is the worst of circumstances. They are in a completely hopeless situation. They, they can't see the sun. They can't see the stars. They can't see anything but the water and the clouds and the rain and this incredible storm. Have you ever been in a situation when all hope is abandoned? Maybe when you're facing a set of trials or circumstances and there just doesn't seem to be any hope or any light or any um, sort of ray of light at the end of the tunnel. That's the position that they find themselves in. They're already tossing things overboard. The storm is violently throwing them around. And after three days of this, they don't see the sun or the stars and they lost all hope. Verse 21 tells us, that since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me, right? It's not the time to be an I told you so kind of person, but Paul is standing up and I guess he's the I told you so kind of of guy because he stands up and he said, I told you, you should have listened to me. We We should not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. So that's the bad news. Verse 22, Paul's going to encourage them. So yet now I urge you to take heart for there will be no loss of life among you. That is, no one's going to die. Only the ship will be destroyed. For this very night, there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men. For I have faith in God, and it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. All right, so now we start to see Paul standing up, not just as a practical leader giving practical advice, which is important. He did that. Uh, It was after the fast. The season was not the right time for sailing. Paul's giving them just normal advice, but they didn't listen to him. And so now Paul, in a moment of crisis, in a moment when all hope is lost, is speaking words of faith and encouragement to them. And he's speaking these words of encouragement. Remember, he's a prisoner, but his voice has weight now. There's almost 300 people, and Paul is risen from the level of uh, prisoner to advisor, and they're all listening. And on what authority does Paul appeal to them? 
Well, he talks about his faith, and he says, on this very night, an angel of God spoke to me, and these are the words that he told me, and Paul is um, encouraging them with his own faith. It will be exactly as God told me. But at the same time, there is the intermingling with God's providential sovereignty, meaning he oversees all the events that orchestrate Paul's life. There's that same intermingling with human responsibility. We still have to sail this thing. We still gotta, we still gotta drive this thing into some island somewhere. And they're still gonna take, um, human agency mingled with God's sovereignty over them. They don't just say, God's sovereign, let's just close our eyes and let the storm happen, right? They're, they're still working. And this, this gets darker before it gets brighter, right? Look at verse 27. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. Verse 30 says, As the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, they had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. What's going on here? Uh, there, there would be a little uh, sort of dinghy, a small lifeboat uh, that they would load the anchors in and they would uh, let some distance go between the ship itself uh, where they would drop these anchors and they would sort of drag along the ground from a distance. And so these particular sailors thought, forget the crew, forget everybody else. Let's just pretend like we're going to drop anchors and let's, let's just get out of here. We're getting closer and closer to land. And so they were going to abandon ship. And so Paul speaks up again, and now he's giving orders to the centurion. Look at verse 31. Paul said to the centurion and the rest of the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you won't be saved. So the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's lifeboat, and they let it go. So now Paul is in charge. It's been 14 days um, since that time. And verse 33 says, As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you've continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you, take some food. It will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. If you were to trace that that language is used in three or four other great promises of God in the Old Testament that he will rescue, that he will deliver, that he will save. Not a hair of their head would perish. Paul picks up on that and he encourages them to eat, knowing that they have possibly a swim ahead of them to get to shore. And then, verse 35, when Paul had said these things, he took bread and he gave thanks to God in the presence of all of them and he broke it and he began to eat. Now, what does that remind you of? Yeah, the Lord's Supper, right? When Jesus, on the, the last night before he was betrayed, the night he was betrayed before the crucifixion, it says he took bread, and when he had gave it, given thanks, he, he distributed among them, and they ate. Jesus, when he was on the road to, with the disciples to Emmaus, they didn't recognize him, right? But he taught them from the book, of, from all of Moses' writings, who the Messiah would be. And then it says, when they got to Emmaus, Jesus broke bread and gave thanks and gave it to them. And they recognized him. 
Paul wrote to the Corinthians about how they should break bread together. Breaking of bread is um, the uh, another word for they took the Lord's Supper. And whenever we take the Lord's Supper, it is a gospel proclamation. Do you see the level in which Paul has gone from lowly prisoner to the basically the commander and the spiritual leader of these 276 people? Verse 36 The storm's not over. They're not on land yet. But it says they all were encouraged and they ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. Verse 38. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship. They threw out all the wheat into the sea. Now this is their cargo that they were delivering. Rome required 180 tons of wheat to be delivered for its... um, outer you know region for the entire Rome area that's how much wheat was delivered in a year to Rome 180 tons and so it was cheaper they found to have wheat sent from Africa by ship than it was to transport it the same amount that could go by ship could only go 15 miles on land so the roads, the, they didn't have big trucks or anything like that, so it was cheaper. So all these grain ships would have all been pouring into Rome at different times of the year to meet the needs that they had here. They're in such a dire situation that verse 38 says they threw all the cargo into the ship. That means nobody makes any money, right? That means all hope for our lives, that's all we care about at this point. We have no desire to deliver the cargo anymore. Verse 39, when it was day, they didn't recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship into the shore. So they cast off the anchors, they left them in the sea, they loosened the ropes that tied the rudders, and then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground, and the bow struck and remained immovable. And the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners. Now, why would they do that? Well, they would do that because if you were a Roman soldier and you were put in charge of a prisoner and that prisoner escaped, that your life was on the line. You would be executed if the prisoner that you were guarding escaped. Um, You remember um, there were soldiers who guarded the tomb of Jesus they got into trouble because Jesus was his body was no longer there, and and the uh, Pharisees told them just tell them that his disciples came and we'll protect you. It was a serious thing for a Roman soldier to lose the life of a prisoner that they were escorting or that they were in charge of, and so their goal was let's just kill all the prisoners and say they died at sea lest any of them should swim away and escape. Verse 43, But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. So he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest to float on planks or pieces of the ship. And so it was. All were brought safely to the land. Just that verse there. All of them were brought safely to the land. This is a 17-day or so just drift in a violent storm where they are losing everything and not a single life was lost. Chapter 28, verse 1. After we were brought safely through, we learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness. 
For they kindled a fire, and they welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain, and it was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man's a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Paul, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or to suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and they saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Do you see the amazing trajectory that Paul is on? He's a prisoner being escorted. And by the end of this chapter, they think he's a god. He's single-handedly, by his faith in Jesus, saved 276 people. The ship was a total loss, but, but Paul has been elevated to a place where he's commanding the centurion, and he's leading the soldiers, and he's the one telling everybody what to do. And I think when you, when you see that trajectory, that this verse sticks out to you even more. Uh, go back to verse um, 3. Paul's out gathering sticks and putting them on the fire. What a mark of a great servant leader. It was Jesus who said that if you want to be the greatest among you, that you must be the servant of all. Paul has just rescued all of these people. And yet as soon as they get to shore, he's not commanding you. You go get sticks and you go build a fire. And you go do... Paul's the one out gathering sticks. Uh, unfortunately, he gets bit by a snake, which is another part of the story here. Uh, but he doesn't have any effect from it. Verse 7 of chapter 28, it says, Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. This was a common condition. The fever could last as many as three months. Uh, It could last as long as a year, but it was a very painful and uh, debilitating disorder that his father had. It says that uh, Paul visited him and prayed and put his hands on him, and he healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. So after three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered on the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. And then on the second day, we came to Puteoli. There we found the brothers, and we were invited to stay with them for seven days. They're going to make the rest of the trip by land, walking, uh, this, this last journey. So they wait for seven days, maybe for their wounds to heal up, maybe for them to supply up, maybe for them to get ready to make this long journey. Um, verse 14, they found brothers uh, who invited us to stay with them for seven days, and then we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about it, came as far as the forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. And on seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. 
Well, that's the end of the, the section. We're going to wrap up the whole book of Acts next week with the rest of chapter 28. Um, but this was a good stopping point for this place because by the end of it, you get this image that Paul, as he's walking in, people are coming to him from all these different cities and greeting him. And Paul is almost being cheered and supported on his way into Rome. A really interesting passage if you're into sailing. It's interesting if you're not into sailing, but but there's a lot of sailing verses in here. But what can we do if we look beyond that? How can we apply this? I want to I want to leave us with two points of application. Number one is the leadership growth of Paul. The leadership growth of Paul. Maybe you're a leader in some context. Certainly every one of you has the capacity to be a leader in some context, whether you're a leader in your workplace or a leader at your school or a leader on some sort of a team. Um, All of you have a capacity for leadership in some way. Certainly you'll be a leader in a family at some point. What leadership lessons can we learn? Because Paul is out of his element. It's not like Paul is walking into a church and people recognize him and he's off just given instant credibility and leadership. Paul starts at the very low point of the pecking order. I remember in seminary, I went to work at a a place called UPS, and it was a great place to work. They paid for all my school, and and I started off on the very lowest point. Uh, Just carefully, I wouldn't throw, but I would carefully lift boxes and put them on a conveyor belt, uh, unloading airplanes at the beginning of the night and putting packages on conveyor belts, and then at the end of the night, putting packages into these big boxes and putting them on airplanes and sending them out. And and as I was surrounded by 18 to 22-year-old University of Louisville college students, and I was a 30-year-old seminary guy who put on a couple extra pounds, within a couple months I realized, I can't do, this is not for me. I need to get promoted, right? I've got to find a way to get to a supervisor level. And so I I just kind of made a, a silly list and I thought this is what I'll do to get promoted. I'll I'll um you know, I'll walk fast and I'll carry a clipboard and I'll work look like I'm working I'll look at my watch a lot and like that's kind of what supervisors at UPS would do. And so I thought if I just kind of mimic their behavior But then I thought of something different, uh, you know, a more godly way to get ahead. I would show up early and I would be uh, faithfully, diligently, dutifully working. There were a number of cans that guys would unload every night and there were a number of cans that they would load. And and the really top-notch workers would load 18 to 20 of these large canisters and unload that many as well. And so I tried to pace myself with those top guys. I, I decided I would become a servant. I would, when I finished mine, instead of immediately going to take a break, I would go into somebody else's and try to help them. I took Jesus' servant leadership model and put it into practice. I didn't take breaks before anybody else was done. I made sure that everyone was done. If I could help the slowest person or a person with an injury or a person with a heavier package, that was my goal. I didn't do it faithfully. I didn't do it great. But I knew that if I was ever going to, to get promoted, that being a servant to everyone on the crew was a way in which they could see maybe Jesus in me and that it would result in me being promoted. And after just a period of months of practicing servant leadership and being a helper, I was able to do that. Um, but it was a lesson for me in leadership. 
And we see that in the life of Paul here. I've already mentioned that he's, he's picking up sticks and he's gathering firewood and he's helping to build the fire. But not only that, once he gets there, he goes to see Publius and he, he heals his father. There's no indication that he was invited. And then everyone on the island of Malta is bringing Paul all the sick. And so he's in one place and he's praying for people. He's praying for the sailors that he's been sailing with. He's doing all of these things in a way that God elevates this prisoner from the lowest to the leader in a four-month period. How are you in your area of servanthood? In your place of business, in your family, in your home life, at school? What's your priority? How do I get ahead? How do I beat everyone else? Or how can I be a servant? How can I serve the least of these? Certainly there's some other leadership lessons that we learn from Paul. He's trusted right away when they land at Sidon. Julius, the centurion, says, Paul, have some freedom. Go see your friends. This is a prisoner that he's supposed to be guarding. And immediately upon arriving at Sidon, Julius just lets Paul go. Paul could have ran, right? But somehow... Julius knew that he was trustworthy, whether he had known him from his two years at Caesarea, or whether he had heard the testimony of Cornelius, who was also in Caesarea, or other centurions who had given their life to Christ. Something about Paul and his faith in Jesus helped Julius know that he was trustworthy. Listen, if you want to be a leader in any way, your word has to mean something. If you're found to be an exaggerator or a liar or a deceiver or someone who says you got something done when you really didn't get anything done, or if your numbers are off, if you're not a trustworthy person, then this is an area of integrity and character that will limit your level of leadership in any organization. Paul was trustworthy. Paul had a practical wisdom, not just spiritual. There are some people who are so spiritually minded, you've heard the phrase, the cliche, that they're no earthly good. They're always you know, doing spiritual things and, and, and never really doing practical things. Paul understood the ways of the world and he was able to give practical, good wisdom about sh- sailing and ships and the winds and things like this. Paul was fervent in seeking the Lord on behalf of others. He was praying. He was receiving uh, wisdom. He received a word from an angel that told him a promise that reminded him that Jesus told him he would get to Rome. He took on spiritual leadership, not just secular leadership, but in front of the secular crew, he broke bread and he prayed for them and he began to speak to them, certainly about the gospel as well. All of these attributes that we just see in these two short chapters can be for us a sort of recipe if you intend to grow as a leader, as a Christian leader, particularly in a secular environment. And so as you reflect on this passage, give yourself a grade. How are you doing in some of these areas of Christian leadership, particularly in a secular environment? Do people trust you? Are you a man of your word? Are you a woman of your word? Um, Are you a servant of all? Helping, serving, helping other people in that way? Do you give wisdom and advice that is applicable and helpful? 
That's the first thing. We see incredible leadership lessons for Paul in this chapter. And then the last thing I'll close with is that overall we see the glorious providence and sovereignty of God. I mean, a five-week trip, right, turns into a four-month nightmare filled with near-death experiences. They almost starve. They get into multiple storms. They have a shipwreck. All the guards want to kill the prisoners. And then by the time they make it to land and everything seems fine, Paul gets bit by a snake. Listen, God promised him that he would go from Caesarea or Jerusalem when the initial promise came all the way to Rome to stand before Caesar. But it was far from easy. The providence of God when Paul was on mission and living according to the purpose of God was not thwarted by nature, by animals, or by people, or by anything else. God would accomplish his purpose for Paul in spite of all of these obstacles. And so the lesson for us is you can trust in the providence of God. God is at work accomplishing his purposes for your life. You'll remember just a few weeks ago, I talked about the John Piper quote that God is always doing 10,000 things around us and you may only be aware of a few, right? Really good blog if you want to look it up later. Fantastic read, but it, it demonstrates the truth that you may not see the whole picture. All you might see are your trials or your pain or your circumstances, but, but you have no idea how the providence of God and the sovereignty of God is moving you from where you are to where he wants you to be. And you can see it really clearly in just this episode in Paul's life. Romans eight twenty eight. you know the passage that we know that God works together for the good of those who have been called according to his purpose. That God is using your circumstances, good or bad, painful or not. All of those circumstances God weaves together to accomplish a purpose for those who know him. William Cowper reminds us in his classic hymn, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea, and he rides upon the storm. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he often hides a smiling face. Even though you don't understand everything that is happening when you consider the twists and the turns of your life, the good things and the bad things, Understand that God is working for believers good for his glory. Years ago, we, we brought a, a tapestry illustration up where if you ever look at a, a large rug or something that someone has hand put together, on the back of it, you see all these crazy strings that don't make any sense, uh, but are, are put together in a way that when you turn it to the other way, an entire picture emerges. Listen, your life will be like that, a picture of God's providence and leading as you continually submit to him and yield to him and are on board with his purpose for your life. Well, Father, we thank you for the way in which we see this really clearly in Paul's life. That what should have been a simple five-week trip that turned into um, a four-month-long shipwreck and difficult journey all leaded, uh, led him to a place where he fulfilled your role for his life. He still got to Rome and he still arrived there safely and still was able to give a gospel witness there in, in Rome. So we thank you that from the promise to the payoff at the end, 
Though it was a long and winding, difficult road, we thank you that Paul maintained faith and that you accomplished your purpose through him. So much so that we're, we're still talking about him today. And we thank you for that. Let us learn from Paul and from uh, what your word tells us about your sovereignty in our own lives. Help us to make sense of what you're doing in our life today based on how you've always operated with us and, and the good history that we've had with you. Help us to know that you are steadfast and faithful, that you are a faithful God, and we worship you because of who you are today. We pray your favor and your blessing on your word. In Jesus' name, amen.